you're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, listeners out there in listener land. Howdy. And welcome to episode 27 of the Common Descent podcast. Woohoo! Today, we are talking about a topic that was requested by Michael on our blog. How about that? Woohoo! Thank you, Michael, for your suggestion. He asked if we could talk about domestication. Yes. The very fascinating sort of subset of evolution where humans take over. Artificial selection. Yes, uh, taking over and turning wild creatures into pets or livestock or <laughs> crops or whatever it is we want to turn them into. Into other. Yes, into <laughs> miscellaneous. So we're going to talk about sort of what that is, how that process happens, the mm -hmm. impacts, some of the history of domestication. But before we get to that, there was a quick announcement to make, because as regular listeners will know, if you are a patron and you your patronage is of a certain level, we say your name on the podcast. Yeah, we do. And today, the name we're saying is William Clayton. Hey, William, thank you for joining our Patreon. Welcome, William. Good name. It's it's I I personally uh, am quite fond of it. I know one or two cool folks <laughs> named William. <laughs> but as usual, before the topic and after the announcements, we've got all sorts of news to talk about. The news, starting from our very own William, right here in the studio, and by studio I mean. Skype call spanning a thousand miles. <laughs> Take it away. Well, thank you, David. My first news article uh, is very, very recent, and I've seen it pop up a few places, but it is about a new species of dinosaur from China that has a particular display that makes it stand out. So this, uh, this study is in Nature Communications by Dong Yu Hu, and it is about a Little, you know, very small dinosaur, about uh, duck-sized is how they described it, which makes it more adorable, I think. <laughs> that was found in China. Feathered dinosaur that mm -hmm. actually was so well-preserved that they were able to identify some of the potential areas of coloration on the dinosaur. Yeah. And it had some very unique displays going on. Feathered dinosaurs are... are not a, a new thing that we've talked about here, but this one has something unique thus far. This is uh, Kai Hung Juji, is how I would pronounce that name if forced to. Tsai uh, <laughs> Hong. Tsai Hong? All right. Yeah. I, I like that better. That's pinyin. Uh, this is, it, the name means in Mandarin, rainbow with big crest. <laughs> and it's fitting because it does have a little bony crust on the nose where that part yeah. of the name comes. The rainbow has to do with the fact that from what they've been able to see in the remnants of the feathers, they had iridescent feathers on the neck, chest, and part of the tail, which are the same kind of reflective feathers that hummingbird throats have. 
Yeah. So there's like a, a wind chime effect where they, they're reflecting and refracting the light. They're, they're, they look kind of metallic. They're extremely bright. Usually multiple colored rainbow effect. Now, exactly what color they were displaying, we can't see. Yeah. But we do know that it was having, or the molecules that are left behind, which are called melanosomes, are very similar to a hummingbird's. They're long and flat and um, organized in these sheets, just like those on the feathers of a hummingbird neck. Very cool. Yeah. So this 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 is cool for a lot of reasons. One, for one of the first times we've we've seen something directly like this, and it has a lot of implications for how it might have been using that display that that coloration on the chest and neck. Just like hummingbirds, it could have been for uh, display and mating and uh, uh, communication between individuals. Mm -hmm. It also has other interesting feathers because it has asymmetrical feathers, which are the same as flight feathers, on the tail. Yeah. Which is neat. It has other feathers around the body that are um, the same as flight feathers. It's not likely that it could fly, but maybe it glided. Mm -hmm. But it, it has... A, a tail setup that may have been supporting in some of that gliding, which is unique and weird. Yeah, that it's it's got a, a, an array of those characteristics of f aerodynamic feathers mm -hmm. plus display features, and even that iridescence has been seen elsewhere. Yeah, and so th these are. It's funny if this dinosaur had been discovered fifteen or twenty years ago, it would have been insane. Yeah. It's it's but really now cool. this is this is just starting to be expected. Now the the neat one thing with this one is it is the oldest to have at least the asymmetrical feathers of all specimens found to date, which is very cool. Ooh, yeah, that is very cool. So yeah, cool little pretty dinosaur. Good stuff. Hey, speaking of pretty flying ancient things, <gasps> let's talk about butterflies. Butterflies. So my first news piece today is about the earliest fossil evidence of insects of the order Lepidoptera. And uh, any entomologists out there will recognize Lepidoptera as the order that includes butterflies and moths. Yeah. So a group of researchers uh, who published this, uh, this is Timo van Eldijk et al. in the journal Science Advances were drilling for pollen in Germany. And when they were looking through the samples that they were getting, microscope, you know, searching through the microscope samples, they found these tiny little scales. Because, again, entomologists uh, may know that butterflies and moths, they have scales covering their wings. Yeah. And these, so these are, you know, that's cool to begin with, as you found mm -hmm. neat scales from butterflies and moths. The age makes them interesting because these are from right around the Triassic-Jurassic boundary, around 200 million years ago. And there is a diversity of the scales, which suggests that there was a diverse population of these insects at that time. And the structure of the scales, they're hollow. Ooh. And hollow scales are known mostly, perhaps exclusively or almost exclusively, from in living lepidopterans that have a sucking proboscis. Interesting. 
So the long nose that unfurls and they use to suck up pollen and stuff, or, or, or uh, nectar and stuff. Mm-hmm. And this is interesting because researchers before this have presumed that the earliest mother- butterflies and moths had mandibles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, most insects, you know, that's a common insect Absolutely. feature is to have, you know, jaw, jaw pieces. Yep. And it's a surprise to find sucking mouthparts in the late Triassic because there weren't flowers yet in the late Triassic. Yeah, we tend to forget that flowers weren't always a thing. <laughs> yes, they didn't radiate until the Cretaceous period. Mm-hmm. So here we have insects with sucking proboscis, which today are used largely for pulling nectar yeah. out of flowers, 70 million years before flowers radiated. Yes. Which is very interesting, because it tells us that this feature likely evolved for something different first. Mm-hmm. And these researchers suggested that it may have ju- you know, may have been as simple as pulling sugar droplets out of seed plants, mm-hmm. Out, mm-hmm. out of the seeds of, of, of other plants that were around at the time. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's, it's neat when you find out that a, a feature you assumed was designed for a the purpose it's being used for may not have been, which opens yeah. up, I mean, it opens up a whole list of, okay, well, what else can you use a straw for? Like what, how many different ways can you use this? And there definitely are options. You know, it's, uh, butterflies aren't the only proboscis wielding insect. Yeah. There's even, uh, you know, like the predatory assassin bug, you know, uses it that way to extract nutrients from insects, but you get, you now have to look at how could these early things be surviving. And that's, oh, that's really interesting. I, I'd love to see what we find out as we look at this more. Yes, that, that sort of question comes up with things like the dinosaur you just talked about. Yes. This is an animal that had colorful feathers and even aerodynamic feathers that probably wasn't flying. Yeah, and they, they pointed that out, that it, this supports the idea that feathers were used as a display before they were f- flight and uh, uh, in the evolutionary line of flying or of feathers. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, the, these folks, uh, they found these by putting a drill through the ground, going down quite a bit under northern Germany's mm-hmm. sediment landscape, and they found about 70 scales. Interesting. Which is a pretty good haul for a time period that we've never found <laughs> butterfly or moth fossils from before, yep. which is pretty cool micropaleontology people it's important yes remember hey remember that time we did a whole episode yeah about micropaleontology episode 22 for such a small thing it's a big deal sure is speaking of big awesome things now from the little little tiny or the tiny awesome thing i would like to talk about tail clubs oh let's i'm always up for a good chat about tail clubs yes the the thagomizers as uh <laughs> as um uh, far side has dubbed them. Um, I believe Thagomizer is specifically a stegosaur tail. It was. It was. Now, the, you you will hear the term Thagomizer used. It is from a Fireside comic, and it mm-hmm. was named after the late Thag, who was killed by a <laughs> stegosaurus. That was, the, that was the joke. That's where Thagomizer comes from. And it was a yep. picture and, of a stegosaur on the wall. <laughs> and it has become absorbed into the paleontology lexicon. Yes. We now use that phrase officially, yes, thagomizer, for the, the spiky tail of a stegosaur. Which is just fantastic. <laughs> but they're not the only ones with tail weaponry. They are not. And that's what this study was looking at. 
basically a number of researchers asked the question, why do we no longer see animals with tail weaponry, with weaponized defensive tails? Mm-hmm. And you see that in the fossil record multiple times. Stegosaurs famously have them. Ankylosaurs, of course, have their giant clubs. The Glyptodons also wielded clubs and uh, mace-style tails. Even yeah, those were the big armadillo cousins from the ice. Yeah, age. we mentioned those in our sloth episode. And yep. even sauropods had these, uh, they referred yep. to them as flails. Basically, the tip of some of their tails were fused vertebrae that they could whip and have a, a concussive force at the end. Yeah, there are even turtles that have yes. evolved spiky, thick tails. And so these all are, are very interesting, but we don't see this feature in almost any modern day group. And so what they did was look at these groups to see what they shared, what they had in common. Now, mm -hmm. this was done by uh, Victoria M. Arbor, and it was in the Proceedings of Royal Society B. And her and her uh, research team looked at almost 300 extinct and extant groups and species yeah. and using a, a series of features. Are they large? Are they herbivorous? Are they armored? Are they... You know, reptile, mammal, all of these different things. They plugged the features for each specimen into a computer program, and it basically correlated the ones that were found in in common with those club-tailed or those weaponized-tailed groups. Interesting. So, what features do the weapon-tailed yes. animals consistently share? Effectively, it created a Venn diagram where it yes, it would look to where all the animals are overlapping, and they they were it was interesting because they were able to find trends in other animals. So it's an interesting technique in general, but they found three trends that these animals shared. The first was being large, at least larger than they said goat sized, you know, like mountain goat sized. So okay. that size big animal, big yeah. animal, herbivorous. So mm -hmm. you're a plant eater and already having an armored body. That one is interesting. That's the most interesting one to me. That's really interesting. And so these are the three things that the groups that created these weaponized tails in the past shared. This is not to say that those trends will cause the creation of a weaponized tail, but right. we weaponized tails always, so far that we found, came with these three trends in tow. Interesting. So those might be prerequisites. Yeah, exactly. For developing a weaponized tail. Which is... Or at least a tail with weaponry, mm -hmm. sort of on it which is it's it's a really interesting uh question because now we can look at the modern animals and see which groups you know share any of those trends and there actually is they mentioned that you know there are animals with weaponized tails but they're different porcupines have quills on the tail but those are keratin not bony which is true sets them apart even things like penguins and armadillos have armor on the tail but once again uh that's not a bony protrusion from the skeleton that's yeah. that's uh, a different covering that she said there was one uh the giant girdled lizard smog giganteus yep <laughs> has bony protrusions from the tail that it uses to protect itself i don't know if it uses it in an aggressive whipping way but it definitely guards itself with very sharp spikes down the tail yeah those are the armadillo lizards yeah and so it's they're defensive and they they bite their tail and roll up 
Yeah, 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 they do. I don't know if they actually, like, will smack you with their tail. Although a lot of lizards do. Yeah, they mention yeah. that. There, there are animals that use their tail in a defensive way, but, like, monitor lizards who, that is one of their main defenses, have no mm-hmm. attributes to the tail other than just being a tail that they whip you with. Like, there's no yeah, armor. Just yeah, just, it's just a, a tail. And they yeah. use it in a similar fashion. So this is just an interesting look at a weird discrepancy between extinct and modern groups of animals and the way they defend themselves. Very interesting. Yeah. The first thing that this makes me think is that I now want to watch a bunch of alien slash monster movies and see if they follow this rule. That's a good question. Are there are there fictional monsters out there that have like tail spikes and tail clubs that don't follow mm-hmm. these trends? Mm-hmm. Uh, not because they'd necessarily be wrong, because there's only so many times this has evolved, but because it would be interesting. Yeah, I can think of a few that follow two of them, but typically uh, miss the herbivore part. So, yeah, that wouldn't surprise yeah. me. It's it's more interesting if your movie creature is able to eat someone. absolutely very cool my second bit of news our final bit of news is a study that not published yet but presented recently at the society of integrative and comparative biology and this is about prehistoric whale migration now one of the interesting questions with ancient migration is you know how do you tell if a creature has migrated when you only find it where it died. Yarp. You don't get to see them moving. One way that this has been done in the past, there was a study that we may even have talked about of looking at mammals in Australia and studying the, the isotopes in their teeth. Yes, yes. Because as they travel from environment to environment, the food they're picking up has a slightly different chemistry, and that's being recorded in the teeth. Mm-hmm. While you don't get that lucky with whales... But one thing that whales do carry around with them is barnacles. Yeah, barnacles. Barnacles. And there have been a handful of studies, at least two, including this one, that have found that you can look at whales, the the barnacles on whales, and because barnacles are continuously growing and building to their shells, they are absorbing the chemistry of the surrounding ocean. Yes. And that can tell you, you know, that chemistry is reflected by temperature yeah. and things like that. So if you look at the barnacles on modern-day gray or humpback whales, for example, which have been studied in this regard, you get a record of the barnacle moving mm-hmm. through different patches of ocean, through different regions, as the whales migrate. Because whales go hundreds of kilometers, thousands of kilometers oh, from yeah. breeding to feeding grounds. Global species. Yes. So Larry Taylor and colleagues wondered if you could do the same thing with ancient whales. Cool. So they collected two species of barnacles from the Pacific coast of the Americas. These are one of them is a species that today lives on humpback whales and the other one lives on gray whales. These came from the Plyo Pleistocene. So we're looking at, you know, five to three maybe five to two million years ago, in that range. And what they found was that they see a similar shift in the chemistry of the barnacle shells 
that you see on barnacles that ride on whales today. Interesting. Which suggests that the ancient whales were making very similar migrations that we see in whales today up and down the Pacific. Yeah. In addition to being just a really cool proxy for studying an interesting question, this now this is preliminary. There's a lot more to do, and there's a lot more other pieces to add in before we can start really answering questions mm-hmm. uh, in a big way. But this has the potential to not only tell us about how whales were, you know, were they doing the same thing in the past, but if there were times where it changed, mm-hmm. right? How has their migration path shifted as as time has gone on, especially as climates have yeah. changed and as ocean dynamics have changed. The answer to those questions may be in the barnacles that ride on the whales. Very cool. I like this for two main reasons. I, I, I like the, the shelled animals often get overlooked by uh, you know, popular science because they're just shells, but they are really important because of their chemical makeup. Yeah. And that's, that's a cool, this is, this is a really cool use of that in showing that they are incorporating things from the water around them. So it, it majorly affects how the shell is uh, chemically composed. Yes. It's also cool because it would be neat to see if we can correlate the migration changes with already known climactic changes. Yep. And that will be really interesting to see how they sync up and, you know, will, will we notice a migration change that might reveal a climactic shift that we might not have noticed before. Stuff like yeah. that. It's, it's a really cool opportunity. It is, and it has the potential to open up another window. Mm-hmm. Like, we can study morphology, and we can study, you know, think things about development and how animals in the past grew. Mm-hmm. But to be able to study their migration pathways opens... It's a whole other way that we can look into their lives in the past and their environment in the past. It's a, it's a huge chunk of their behavior, and behavior is such a rare thing to truly be able to glimpse in fossil species. Yes. I also really like that this is only possible because of a symbiotic relationship. Yeah. That we're, we're learning about whales by studying the stuff that lives on them. Yeah, their, their external biome. <laughs> yes! Oh, it's such... Because when you're... A, when you're the size of a whale, you have ecosystems that live on you. Like macroscopic ecosystems. Yeah, you just you carry a very small city around on your skin. Yes. Which is cool. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So there's all sorts of cool news. Absolutely. Coming out. And with that... And with that, we move on to our feature presentation. Ba-ba-da. I won't finish that jingle because we'll get sued. Yeah, you gotta watch out for copyright. (laughs) (laughs) So, today's topic is domestication. Yeah. Let's start off, as is usually a good way to start, by defining what that word actually means. What is domestication? What is domestication? You would think that this would be an easy question. It's not. (laughs) <laughs> no. Uh this is it it's funny actually because if you if you go to look up domestication you google papers about domestication just about every paper about domestication begins by saying domestication is really hard to define. Here's mm-hmm. the definition we're using. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cuz it's by one case. of those things yeah, every time 
you try we try to come up with a definition, we find an exception. Yeah. But generally, domestication is the process by which one species takes over the care and reproduction of another species over numerous generations, mm-hmm. which typically leads to changes that are beneficial, oftentimes for both species. Yeah. So it's breeding a species as, yes. as pets, as work species. We have taken over this species' trajectory. Yeah. And change them in ways that that are are beneficial to us. This is not the same as taming. Nope. Uh, taming is something you do to an individual animal. It's a behavioral adjustment. Yup. So you can tame like an elephant. Yes. I have tamed this elephant. Mm-hmm. I have tamed this wild beast. <laughs> it will now be my mount. <laughs> but you. Domestication happens over generations. It's an evolutionary process. Exactly. One of the big sort of central cruxes of domestication is the concept, which I don't think we've really talked about on the podcast, of artificial selection. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Yes. So if you are familiar with evolution, you're familiar with natural selection. Absolutely. Survival of the fittest. If you have traits that help you to survive better than your the uh, other species and individuals mm-hmm. around you. You have more babies, you pass on your traits, and nature is sort of acting like a sieve for if the I'm, best the the best survival traits. If I'm faster than my neighbor, I get to the food first, which means I'm healthier, which means he dies when the famine comes and I don't. Yes, which means I attract all the ladies mm-hmm. and we have lots of little me's. Exactly. Artificial selection is when a species chooses Mm -hmm. for another species. Yes. This is something that humans do. Quite often. We say, okay, this is what I want this thing to be like. Yeah, or I really like this trait, so I'm going to focus on it. Yep, so if if you want to race horses... You, all right, I'm going to get a bunch of horses, and I'm going to breed the fastest male. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to breed him until he has fast babies, and then I'm going to breed the fast babies. And we're going to keep making, re- we're going to keep copying mm-hmm. the traits that we want until we have created a racehorse. Or I'm going to stop putting energy into the ones that aren't as good as the ones I like. You know, the slow yes. horses, I'm going to stop feeding those, or I'm going to stop, I'm going to sell them to someone else because I don't. I don't need slow horses. Yes, exactly. We have chosen mm-hmm. the path of of the this species' evolutionary trajectory. This is interesting for a whole lot of reasons. First of all, it happens way faster than natural selection mm-hmm. because natural selection relies on partially random natural processes. Yes, artificial selection, which which means you can see artificial selection, and indeed. The process of breeding, selective breeding, was one of the big clues that Darwin noticed. Yeah. That led to him coming up with his his ideas of, of natural selection. Yeah. Another really interesting point is that we are not the only species that has domesticated things. Which is fascinating. We of course we're the we're the best at it by far. Yeah. We've domesticated tons of animals and tons of plants, but 
under most definitions of domestication, fungus-growing ants yep. <laughs> also count. <laughs> yeah, they do. So these are things like leafcutter ants mm-hmm. who have fungus in their colonies and they bring food to the fungus and they feed it and they remove pests from the their little fungal gardens mm-hmm. and they tend to the gardens and they basically take over yeah. how these fungi live and grow and reproduce in their colonies. Emphasized by the fact that the only place you can find that type of fungus is in that ant colony. Yes, much like the fact that there's no such thing as a wild cow. Yeah. In the sense of what you see in the farm. Yeah, you're not going to see a dairy cow roaming the fields of Africa. Yes, exactly. So we domestication is very much a human thing to do, but it is not uniquely a human thing to do. Which makes it better. Oh, yeah. There are very few <laughs> things that are uniquely human things to it's, do. It's true. It's true. And most of them have been done by insects. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which is, which is, if that's not humbling, I don't know what is. Yeah. Well, it also means that we are not the first ones to do it, because mm-hmm. fungus-growing mm-hmm. ants have been doing it for a long, long time. Really long time. And they, they're really good at it. But for this episode, we're going to focus on the history and details of human domestication of other creatures. Yeah. Now, one of the really interesting things that comes up when you talk about domestication is the fact that there's not very many species that have been domesticated in relation to the amount of species that could have been domesticated. Mm -hmm. Like, we've domesticated a lot of plants and a lot of animals, but we haven't domesticated a whole lot more. Exactly. In fact, not only are there a whole lot of animals that have never been successfully domesticated, plants too, but a bunch of the domesticated things that we have succeeded with have been domesticated multiple times. Yeah. Right? Cattle and and dogs, potentially, mm-hmm. and a lot of crops were domesticated multiple times in different places by yeah. different people. Separately from each other. Which suggests that some species are just better for domestication. Prone to it. So that's our next question, which is, what makes a good domesticant? It's, it sound, this sounds like a, a, a magazine article. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is, this is the, the guide. Yes. So we're like an alien species. Which species should we? What would make a good domesticant? Yeah, it, it would still be a magazine called Cosmo, but for a different reason. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, are you looking to take over an alien planet? <laughs> are you thinking of keeping some of them as pets? What makes the ideal domesticant? Well, these quick ten tips. <laughs> <laughs> How many tips do I have? Ah, it's close to ten. <laughs> Listen up, aliens. So there are a few things that you want in a domesticated species, or in a species that you're, you're going to domesticate in the future. Yeah. One is flexibility. Mm-hmm. A species that has a very specific diet and a very specific habitat are going to be really rough to try to domesticate. Because if you're domesticating them, you're not in their habitat, and you're not necessarily going to be able to feed them their Mm -hmm. uh, their diet if it's an animal. One of the articles that I read made the humorous note that there are no domesticated anteaters. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's a hard animal to feed. It's a, it's a very, that's a very, it's kind of in the name. Yes. <laughs> um, species that, that grow and reproduce quickly. 
uh, really quick before we oh, go ahead. move on. The that first note is actually really interesting because today at work uh, I was talking with a coworker and preparing an activity for a, a class I'll be doing there, and she got into the question of why do why do we have birds but we're not other dinosaurs or pterosaurs blah 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 and I was talking about mm-hmm. the things we've discussed here on big and specialized animals are slower to respond than you know typically small generalist animals yep and that goes for this as well a, a generalist is able to if you give it food and you know a few other basic conditions it's good so yeah they're easy not, to care for they're easy to care for and they're easy to um they're they're better at survival in general yes and and much the same way that slow reproducers have trouble adapting in times of change mm-hmm. slow reproducers are harder to domesticate because it takes longer to get those new traits passed through yeah. cows <laughs> cows reproduce surprisingly quickly especially compared to something like elephants which take forever yeah if you, if the animal you're domesticating is going to outlive you it's yes. probably going to be hard for you to <laughs> we haven't domesticated tortoises yes exactly cuz you would have it would have to be a a um family business that you pass down through the generations yeah absolutely and we will talk about uh, there's something if we have time we will talk about the fox farm experiment yes uh, but more on that later species that do well in human presence Mm-hmm. Uh, this goes mm-hmm. for plants, especially for animals. Some species are super skittish. Deer just don't tolerate having humans around them very well, and they tend to yeah. run away. Some animals are extremely aggressive. Mm-hmm. I learned while doing research for this that apparently one of the big reasons, perhaps, that horses have been domesticated but zebras haven't mm-hmm. is that zebras are super mean. <laughs> Yep. One of the articles I read said that zebras, I'm going to paraphrase because I don't have it in front of me, but zebras have a bad habit of biting their handlers and not letting go until the handler is dead. Yes. Yeah. They're, they're really, the people at the aquarium who have worked at other facilities and worked with zebras all dislike them. And <laughs> one of them said that among his coworkers, they would tell people to stop being a zebra when they were being a jerk. oh that's fantastic (laughs) yeah that makes an animal hard to domesticate if it just if it just doesn't put up with being around humans especially if it kills constantly (laughs) (laughs) that's sort of a that's sort of an issue it it puts a kink in the relationship (laughs) species that are easy to that are 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 willing to breed in captivity Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. certainly makes it easier pandas not great Species that have a social hierarchy in place. Yes. Is really, animals uh, particularly in this case, is really useful because they're already accustomed to living in groups and following leaders. Yeah, following a a dominant individual or, you know, pair or whatever. So a, a species doesn't have to have all those things to be domesticated, but they certainly help. And one other thing that's interesting to think about is that it's helpful if your domesticant, if your potential domesticant, has easily exploitable mutations. Yeah. And an example that I came across was plant toxicity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are some pl- lots, lots of plants are toxic, and obviously if you're breeding it to eat it, you don't want that. Yarp. 
in some plants, their toxicness is controlled by one part of the genome. Yeah, yeah. So it only takes a single mutation to turn their toxic on and off. Yeah. Which is fantastic, because it means you can zero in on it and you can breed selectively for that. But in other species of plants, the, their toxicity might be controlled by, many, by a suite of genes all across yeah. the genome, which makes it way harder to selectively target just that trait to get rid of. It's a more complex and uh, integrated genotype. Yes. Uh, and it, it's, it's a lot like when you think of the, when you're in bio class and you learn about the early experiments with pea plants and, and fruit flies. Yeah. Right? The simplest mutations are the easiest to test for because it's one simple change and you can select for that very quickly. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, uh, it makes me think of um, the difference between having a, a user-friendly like menu and having to go into the code of a program to fix <laughs> yeah. settings. Like if you can just click, you know, you know, autocorrect on and off, or if you have to like go in and turn and type in off, <laughs> yeah. it's much much more difficult. You want your domesticated species to have a a, a good UI. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Once species have been taken under the domestication wing, so to speak, there are a handful of changes that tend to happen across the board. Mm -hmm. So all domesticated, if you, when you compare a domesticated species or a domesticated breed or, you know, species concept, we'll talk about that some other time. Yeah. They're always different, right? Dogs are not quite like wolves. And yep. domesticated chickens are not quite like wild jungle fowl that, that, mm -hmm. that are their closest relatives and ancestors. The changes occur, obviously, and part of it is because there's new pressures on them. Humans are now saying, we want this. This is what we're selecting for. But also because they've lost pressures. They've lost the, the environment in the wild that would favor certain traits, right? In the wild, things like being able to avoid predators and find mm -hmm. your own food are extremely important. But if you're living on a farm and humans are taking care of you all the time, there's no need for that to be a priority evolutionarily. Yes. So you get changes to their genetics, changes to their physical be uh, appearance, changes to their behavior in the case of animals. Mm-hmm. Some common changes, uh, animals across the board, you, they tend to be more docile yep. in domesticated breeds. They're much more used to being around people. Mm -hmm. You tend to see smaller brains and less <laughs> acute senses. Yeah. There's also something that is sometimes referred to as mammal domestication syndrome. <laughs> which, And you see this all across the board. Floppy ears. Yeah. Curly tails and patchy coat colors. Yeah. Like of their fur. For some reason, those show up over and over and over again in different species of domesticated animals. Which is, it's surprising that there is a trend that is not necessarily on purpose. Yes. Well, and once again, if we have time before the end of the episode, mm -hmm. we'll talk about the fox farm experiment. Absolutely. <laughs> it's it's an it because a lot of these you expect the more docile and comfortable people. Well, of course, if I'm 
wanting to you know build my own animal i'm not going to make it hate me oh, so yeah. i'm going to i'm going to focus on the ones that are more friendly but then some of those others you know are interesting side effects the the smaller brain is especially intriguing yeah there's a lot of <laughs> interesting <laughs> implications to that yes there is <laughs> another one that you see you see this in dogs and also in pigs they have shorter snouts interesting which is interesting yeah. and the changes that come along with domestication are sometimes also decidedly negative. Yes. Inside those shorter snouts, dog teeth tend to be all wonky. Mm-hmm. If you ever get the chance... I'll see if I can find a picture for the blog post. Yeah. But if you ever get the chance to look at a dog skull, especially a little dog, like little <sighs> pugs and stuff, their teeth are all smushed into that, that squishy face. Yeah, it is. And a lot of dogs, if you have dogs, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners do, different breeds of dogs tend to have breathing issues or back problems. Or mm-hmm. I think greyhounds have a lot of hip issues because we're not selecting for solutions to the problems that we're causing by selecting yeah. for other things. We're not, we're not selecting for health necessarily, but function. Yes. And, and it's the, the way I... I think of it is it's like trial runs for a product like if you are designing a product and you take time to do all the tests and trial runs and betas you will end up with a really good solid product mm-hmm. that is unlikely to fail but it's going to take a while if you rush production you're going to get the product out faster but there's <laughs> going to be bugs and it's going to be somewhere artificial selection is rush production exactly <laughs> we're you can do it faster you can get it exactly what you're needing right away, but there's gonna be, it's gonna drown in its own slobber. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you end up with these side effects. Mm-hmm. In terms of plants, because arguably the 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 more important half of the domestication coin. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. The changes you tend to see in domesticated plants compared to their uh, wild relatives. They tend to grow faster, which actually you also see in animals. They tend to grow and reproduce quickly. Plants, domesticated plants tend to have larger seeds and fruit. They tend to have less bitter or toxic compounds. Makes sense. One of the most famous domesticated signs of plants is the way they disperse their seeds. So there Uh... is a, a feature in wheat and barley and other grasses where the way that the plants grow in the wild is they develop a whole bunch of seeds on top of the stalk mm-hmm. and then the seeds shatter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that sends seeds in all directions. A very simple mutation stops the, sh- the seeds from shattering, <laughs> which in the wild means that you don't disperse your seeds, which is bad. But if, there are, if it's a crop, it means that all the seeds are collected up at the top in a nice, conveniently <laughs> picked mm-hmm. bundle. And so domesticated plants, you tend to see changes to their dispersal. It's, it's, it's now dependent on us. It's lazier. Yes. Very cool. Uh, and as with animals, plants chain, you know, a lot of domesticated plants cannot survive outside of human oh, yeah. care. But on the flip side, one of the biggest and, and most fascinating side effects for to me is that domesticated species if 
if evolutionary success is measured in how much you reproduce and spread around the world, <laughs> domesticated <laughs> species are some of the most successful species on the planet. They're winning. They've been spread yeah. everywhere. And, and if, if, if I can, I'll look, I'll see if I can post the, uh, on the blog post that XKCD comic mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that compares biomass of different yeah, 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 groups yeah. of animals. And it, it gives you a real sense of just how many cows there are. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, and it's, you know, you can, you can, almost any of us can immediately verify this just by looking outside for a stray cat. Oh, yeah. Like, they're everywhere. It's, they're, they're worse than raccoons in a lot of places. Yeah, they are. <laughs> they're one of the most successful and terrible invasive species on the planet. Mm hmm. We brought them everywhere. And they were grateful. <laughs> <laughs> so there's all sorts of side effects. Obviously, one of the big side effects for humans is that arguably without domestication, we wouldn't have society like we have it today. Yeah. Like agriculture is entirely dependent on domestication. And so the. It has been argued, although I, this is, I think, contentious by some people. Jared Diamond famously wrote a book that, that argues that the parts of human populations uh, toward the end of the Pleistocene that first hit upon domestication are the cultures and languages that then went to take over the world. Interesting. The ones that got there first yeah. had that head start and then spread their culture and their society farther and wider than everybody else. Yeah, yeah, it drove them forward. Interesting. Yeah. A couple of other interesting notes. When, when we breed, we can get very specific. Mm -hmm. Dogs are an obvious example. We've bred yes. dogs for a bajillion different reasons. My favorite example, and a lot of people's favorite example in the plant world, is wild cabbage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because it's a phenomenal demonstration of the power of selective breeding. Depending on how you breed wild cabbage, depending on which part of the plant you're selecting for traits in, we have bred from that single species various forms of domesticated cabbage. Broccoli, mm -hmm. cauliflower, kale, Brussels sprouts, collard greens, kohlrabi, and... Shoot, I wrote kale twice, but there was something else in there. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. That's all the same plant. It just it, and that's, different ways we've bred that that species. And I knew a few of those. I did not know broccoli and cauliflower on that list. That's ridiculous. Yep, they're flowers. They're the flowers yeah. of the plant. It's and it's really plants really like when you compare a weird dog to a wolf, it's like, eh, like that's weird. But with plants, when you see a wild banana or carrot or yeah you know, you know a wild counterpart to what we buy in the grocery store <coughs> it's it's almost alien looking like absolutely it's it's unrecognizable most of the times because for the most part many people have never seen a wild carrot in person yeah you know, let alone a picture of it that makes me think a few years ago there was a video that was going around by a couple of prominent anti-evolution folks. Yep, yep. You I know where I'm going with this. Too. Absolutely. <laughs> it was called Bananas, the Atheist's Nightmare. Dun, dun, dun. This was Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron. 
And the argument they were making, obviously they were saying, all right, we're going to disprove evolution with a banana. And the argument they were making was, look at this banana. Everything about the banana is perfectly designed for humans. It's ergonomically designed. It's, it fits right in your hand. It fits right in your mouth. It's super easy to take a bite out of it. Not only does it peel easily, but the peel has a little handle on the top. So mm-hmm. that you can, it's, it's as though it were designed yeah. for humans to use. Seeds don't get in the way. There's no seeds in the way. And the point they were trying to make was that, look, there was a creator that created a banana for humans. But of course, as soon as this video went viral, people all over the internet with knowledge of bananas jumped in and said, hey, here's a picture of a wild banana. <laughs> the reason that banana looks that way is because we designed it. Yep. And I think it's such a great demonstration of the power of domestication and artificial selection that yeah, we've been breeding bananas for like 7,000 years. So you pick it up and you go, out. Oh, this must have been designed. Yeah, it was. <laughs> we, it we, was. we did. We designed that. Semi-intelligent design. Yes. You <laughs> find a wild banana. Again, I'll see if I can get a picture Absolutely. Uh, side by side. Wild bananas don't look appealing at all. No, no, that no. That wasn't a pun. Hun- I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> I was, I was going to say. <laughs> I, I saw a similar post. This was a, a not trying to make a point but it was just like a little throwaway post on facebook that was a whole bunch of cute videos of owners and their dogs Mm -hmm. and it was just sweet and the tagline said what did we ever do to deserve dogs to which i commented bred them for thousands of years (laughs) (laughs) yeah we made that we bred them to love us (laughs) so that's what we did to deserve them. it's a lot of sweat and work put into (laughs) this first perfect companion it's always really interesting to think about that, that mm-hmm. most of the food you eat and most of the pets that you can, the popular pets you can have, are animals that didn't exist before we started breeding them. Yeah. Like, we invented the domesticated dog. And it's really, it's really easy to forget. And this happens with a lot of things that, when we look at the world, but it's, it's easy to forget that these things are artificial in the fact that they're human-made artificial. We, we yeah. brought them into existence, so you can't you can't look at it normally like you would other things in nature. Yeah, it's got a different. It's, it's got a rules. tweaked history. <laughs> the last dog that I lived with, my friend Ashley's dog. Sometimes I would look at her like because this dog would come up and I'd say sit, and she would sit immediately. <laughs> and I would like half, and she'd follow it around, and I. Like, and she'd be doing tricks and stuff, and I would go, what did we do to you? Yeah. This is incredible. It's incredible, and yeah. it's a little bit terrifying. It's, it's, if anyone's ever watched Cool Hand Luke, it's like the, <laughs> the end of that where we have broken these animals. <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't do it through taming. We did it through G- generational. Genetic engineering. Control, yes. That's what it is. It's the slow version of genetic engineering. I used to, when I, when, before I had a dachshund and fell in love with one, I used to feel bad for tiny weird dogs because it's like, I'm very sorry that we did this <laughs> to you and your backs and noses don't work. And <laughs> yeah. you, you weren't meant to exist. We, we made a mistake. But now I have one and he's fantastic and I can't judge him. Yeah. And also they're living their best life. Oh, yeah. Like we Ooh. we used to joke about the dog at home. Like she'd get 
you know, she'd get sad when, when we would leave or, or something like that. And one day Ashley made the point, and I was like, oh, you know, I wonder why she gets so sad. Like she, you know, we, we always leave, we always come back. It seems like such a minor thing. Mm-hmm. And Ashley made the point that that's the worst thing that ever happens to this animal. Yes, exactly. And I was like, you know that what? Is... That's, that puts things into perspective. This animal's got it pretty good. <laughs> that's what it would go to its therapist about. <laughs> they left again. I don't, it was like eight hours this time. <laughs> All right, more more pet talk and after chat. Right, absolutely. So, that's domestication. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. Now, because, of course, we are interested in the history and the evolutionary trajectory of these things, let's talk about where it started and how it has progressed. How'd we do it? How did we do this? What? Who, who done this? Who did it? Who done it? We done it, actually. The big burst sort of the birth of domestication, happens around ten to 12,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. This is the time period where we see sort of the, the, the big jump that says we have now started to domesticate lots of stuff. This is right at the end of the Pleistocene, right as we're coming out of the last glacial period. This, you know, humans at this time are pretty advanced. We've got advanced tools, we're painting, we're sculpting, yeah. You know, we're we're burying our dead. This is this these are not like super ancient humans. These are pretty modern humans. Yeah, pretty recognizable to what we see. Around that that 10 to 12,000 year range is when you start to see the first livestock, the first crops. Mm-hmm. But that is not the very start of domestication. The very start of domestication does not start with a burst of domesticated animals. It starts with one. <laughs> the first domesticated animals were dogs. Yep. By far. The At least we can all agree it was man's first friend. Yes. <laughs> our first, our <laughs> longest friend. Absolutely. It is difficult to tell when the first domesticated versions of different animals showed up. Yeah. Partially because, as with anything, it's a gradual shift. Mm-hmm. Also, because, like I said, some domestications happen multiple times. Yep. The earliest fossil evidence for domesticated dogs is around 15,000 years ago, but there's argued evidence that goes back to 20,000, 30,000, maybe even earlier. So we've been domesticating dogs for a long, long time. Yeah. We domesticated them from not quite gray wolves, but ancestors very much like modern-day gray wolves. Yeah. And this brings up the big question, my, my favorite question of this, which is, how does domestication start? Yeah. And if you read through domestication literature, you will find commonly, not always, but commonly three pathways that are suggested to be the three ways that domestication might get started. Mm-hmm. These aren't set in stone. There's not only three, but these are sort of the three big ones that I kept encountering. So we'll talk about these. Yeah. The first one, and the one that applies to dogs, is called the commensal pathway. The commensal pathway basically is that a species adapted to live alongside us mm-hmm, mm-hmm. before we started properly domesticating. Because remember, you know, we didn't know we could domesticate things. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. earliest domestications had to have happened by accident. There's just side note for everyone, if we, if we remember to, we can put it on the blog post or not, but mm-hmm. there's a cracked video part of their series of it things that must have happened and one of yep. them is the first dog 
and it's fantastic where it's <laughs> <laughs> early humans and two two couples meet up and one of them has a dog now the other are like oh the monster this <laughs> <laughs> well the commensal pathway for dogs suggests that right it would have started as just two species growing accustomed to being together mm-hmm. so if you think about you know gazelles will hang out near giraffes because yeah. giraffes can spot predators coming and it serves as a warning system. The birds that, that feed on the, the insects off of big mammals, right? Like Ox you see them on water buffalo and rhinos and stuff. That the birds have adapted to pick the food off the big animals, and the big animals have adapted to put up with the birds being there. Mm-hmm. A lot of the times people suggest that our early relationship with dogs was a hunting relationship. Yeah. That we sort of adapted to cooperatively, you know, pick up each other's food, follow each other while hunting, whatever it was that we were growing mm-hmm. gradually closer and closer because we were adapting naturally to each other. Yeah. And th- this may sound far-fetched, but you can see stuff like this. In modern days, there are uh, fishermen who have done this with dolphins. In, uh, yeah. I believe it's in Asia, but the, it's, it's these fishermen who fish on the beach with nets that they cast out. But if the net fish go into deep water, it's too far out for the net. But the, at some point, Dolphins realized, or fishermen realized, that by hunting near each other, the dolphin pushed the fish closer into the shore, mm-hmm. making it easier to catch by the fishermen, and the fishermen, in gratitude, would throw fish back to the dolphins. Yeah. And the dolphins would also be able to catch fish, avoiding the fishermen. And it's been going on for generations. A completely natural, symbiotic cooperation of hunters. Yep. The do- they did not train each other, but they just are both working together. Happened. It was a natural mm-hmm. process. And then once you have a close-knit relationship, humans can start... Because basically, we start treating them as tools. Yeah. Right? We're expert tool users, and we start making more and more decisions about which ones we're okay with hanging out with us, mm-hmm. what we want to get them to do, and then domestication begins. Um, another early animal that followed a commensal pathway that shows up by around ten that ten to 12,000-year pulse are cats. Yeah. Cats almost certainly began as pest control. Mm-hmm. Human settlements attract mice and little things like that. Cats are great to have around for catching those things. Mm-hmm. It works out for both parties. And then cats are also adorable. Yeah. So They're it's, entertaining. It's not difficult to imagine humans taking in a lost kitten or leaving food out for cats intentionally. Yeah. As we gradually grow, a co- and, and then of course building religions around them eventually. Yes, yes, it's a <laughs> that that lasts till today. Yeah, I was about to say that. I was about to say yes, and the cat sitting on my bed, right in the middle of it, sprawled out, taking up all the space. Can attest to this. <laughs> Luckily, we left those archaic <laughs> traditions behind us long ago. Oh, do you need a glass? Yes, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Did I disturb you? <laughs> So dogs came first, and then once you get into that ten to 12,000-year range, you start to see the big deal prey animals. Yeah. Cattle, pigs, goats, and sheep all show up at various places across Asia. These would have followed a different path, the second pathway, which is known as the prey pathway. Mm-hmm. Basically, these were animals that we were hunting. Yeah. And the prey pathway to domestication suggests that it would have started as just us getting more and more efficient at hunting. 
these animals until we were managing them. So there is evidence, for example, with early cow, cattle, uh, early cow and you know, sort of pre-domesticated, Bogans. early domesticated cows, of humans intentionally killing males instead of females. Yeah. For example. Because if you kill the males, the females still get to reproduce. Also, it has the handy benefit of getting rid of the aggressive uppity ones mm-hmm. that make it harder for you to get in there. There's evidence for early on the way we started hunting them was putting pressures on the cows to develop smaller sizes, to develop more rapid growth rates, mm-hmm. all while at the same time we're you know, we, we, we skewed the male-to-female ratio, so these yeah. populations tended to be female-dominant, which means we also threw off their hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So it starts as us managing. So, okay, what's, what can we do to make sure that this is easier to hunt, mm-hmm. readily available, and along the way we are accidentally selecting for the traits that will make them easier and easier to manage. Yeah. Until eventually we're okay. We are. We got them in a fence, and we're exactly intentionally making these decisions. That's what I was gonna say. It, it, it's not a a very big leap of logic to see from going from there to corralling. Uh, yes. You know, if we can just keep them from leaving this area of the valley, they've got plenty of grass, and we can just come in and kill one every now and then. Yeah. To eventually, oh, let's get them back home. Yeah. It's that's that's not a difficult procession that you could follow especially if you've got dogs that are you know i don't i don't know when herding dogs started but i I imagine they started pretty early on and herding dogs still are one of the most impressive forms of (laughs) domestication like this is a dog that you can communicate to via whistles or other (laughs) you know signals to do complex crowd organization and control like that is it's not just simple go chase them now it is bring them closer spread them out you know split them up it's ridiculous yeah that the benefit of having been in this relationship for thirty thousand years (laughs) yeah it's gotten it's well it's like pollinators it's gotten very intricate and complex absolutely not every animal falls into either the prey or the commensal pathway uh, mm-hmm. Pigs, for example, could easily have been a little bit of both, right? They're it's scavengers, but they're trash. also food. Yeah, exactly. You can think of more recent animals like, uh, you know, mice and rats. Domesticated mice and rats could easily have started out as commensal. Pigeons, mm-hmm. right? And these are animals that adapted to live in human habitats, mm-hmm. and then we took over. Things like that. Yeah, I mean, it it, it makes sense. You know, there's a whole group of animals uh, that have specialized to thrive in our modern world that we've created in our cities and our towns yeah so i mean it makes sense it's uh if i'm a guy in a a city way back when and i keep seeing these pigeons that are everywhere and i finally go you know what i'm gonna catch one see what i can learn about it absolutely super easy all i have to do is put some breadcrumbs on my (laughs) windowsill and you know they're they're already not scared of me absolutely and then it's a step from there to going, ah, I'm going to put a note on it. <laughs> the other thing that happens at around the same time, right, we're in that 10,000-year range back in, the, back in the beginnings, is plant domestication takes off in a big way. Like yeah. we said, arguably the most important of domestication events. 
In the Fertile Crescent, we see the appearance of what are called the Founder Crops. Yeah. The eight Founder Crops are flax, barley, lentil, peas, chickpeas, bitter vetch, emmer wheat, and einkorn wheat. Einkorn wheat, by the way, is the same thing as finkel wheat. Wouldn't you know it? <laughs> finkel wheat. Finkel, Finkel, and Einkorn. That was a joke. There's no such thing as Finkel wheat. <laughs> Finkel, Einhorn. Finkel, Einhorn. and Einkorn. These are called the founder crops because these essentially kickstart agriculture. This is what turned us from nomads to civilizations. Yes. One of the biggest shifts in human history was... How we could make cities. Founded on domestication. It's, it's this, it's, it seems like such a simple thing because we, we've... We see farming as such a, a mundane part of human existence, but it is what took us from one stage of existence on the planet to very quickly to what we are now. Yeah, absolutely. We see those crops show up in the Fertile Crescent over in Eurasia. Not too long after that, there are also early crops show up in the Americas. Maize, mm -hmm. squash, potatoes, things like that. The path to plant domestication was probably a whole lot like the uh, prey pathway, where it was yeah. just us harvesting and getting better and better at harvesting, bringing plants home and dropping and dispersing their seeds around, and then, you know, we're selecting for plants that might not otherwise be surviving. They keep growing around our house. Replanting from your groceries. Yep. I've got a potato, so I'm going to grow some potatoes, you know. It, it's it's and that's something that is interesting because that could have happened completely by accident of we found potatoes came home ate said potatoes someone was messy yep and then potatoes started growing in the garbage heap yep or in the dung pile yep and now well if we can just do that yeah I'll have to leave well, home it's, as often it's we picked we only picked the ones that had the seeds in a convenient little bundle and now there's a yep. bunch of those growing out of the dung pile yep awesome. It's really interesting. So the Pleistocene ends, we've got dogs and cats and livestock and crops. And then as the the, the millennia go on, and we get, you know, 8,000, 7,000, 6,000, 5,000 years ago, we start to see the appearance of a third pathway to domestication. This is known as the directed pathway. And the directed pathway is extremely straightforward. The directed pathway starts when a bunch of humans look at a species and go, huh, be really cool if we domesticated that. I want one. I want one. Yeah. The domesticated <laughs> pathway is basically we've been doing it for thousands of years. We figured out what we're doing. Well, and, and it's, it's also that interesting thing of now we know it's possible. Yes. It probably happened multiple times for the most part by accident, you know, or by convenience yep. or happenstance. And now we've gone. Well, I've got a dog, a cow, and corn. I want that horse. Absolutely. And what we start to see at these slightly later times is new species, but also what's called secondary product breeding mm -hmm. or domestication. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, we looked at cows and went, hey, you know what else we could breed these for? Yeah. Making milk yep. or doing work. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, breeding dogs for doing work. Yeah, labor animals. It also meant that we could look at animals in the world around us and come up with ideas for what to breed them for. Which is really interesting. So around this time, right, we're looking at like the spy, by, by 6,000 years or so, 
we have at least begun to domesticate horses, donkeys, and camels mm-hmm. as work animals. Yeah. There's records of trial and error, too. I, I believe there are records of people at least thinking about domesticating zebras and then giving up after a while. Yeah, yeah. Because it just doesn't take. Absolutely. And you, you'll hear stories about that, especially with, like, um, uh, you know, eccentric, you know, rich people. Uh, um, I, I know there have been things in, like, Rome during the, the Colosseum time where they were getting all sorts of exotic animals. And yep. just kind of... <laughs> just kind of messing around and seeing what they could do with them and finding some, you know, worked and others didn't. Yeah. Back around that 5,000-year time period, we see a few others, just some fun ones. Uh, chickens have been domesticated yeah. by five or 4,000 years ago. Another, Definitely the most important domesticated birds. By far. Over in the Andes in South America, guinea pigs are domesticated by around 5,000 years ago. For food, they're, they're used as a food source, also as part of the local culture. Interesting. And speaking of animals that are part of the local culture, we start to see the first breeds of cat by three or 4,000 years ago in Egypt. Neat. So it's not just, you know, we've got pets, we've got food, we've got labor, but just keeping them around because they have become important. Yeah. They have a cultural significance to us, which is really interesting. And that's that's the, the one of the interesting things about domestication is uh, it makes complete sense that we started domesticating these animals because it was beneficial to us. You know, if I'm a hardworking nomad who's having to literally kill to survive, mm-hmm. I don't like I'm already having to take care of my kids. I don't want another animal that is just loafing around my house. <laughs> yeah. But now that we have built civilization yep. and we have crops. I, I, you know, the dog was always cute. Yeah, I'm okay with it just being cute. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other thing, and this is my favorite entry on the list. There's actually two entries. <laughs> By around 5,000 years ago, humans had domesticated honeybees and silkworms. Yep. yep. I, that's what I thought they were going to be. <laughs> we domesticated is... insects. How cool is that? <sighs> So bizarre that we were even able to. And they're domesticated for weird stuff. Yeah. We domesticated honeybees to make things for... Like, they, both of them make stuff for us. Yes. You are going to make my sweetener, and you are going to make my clothes. You're going to make th- the stuff that I make fabric out of. It's... And it's... <laughs> which, once again, we're getting to such... And nowadays, these things have all been established for so long. But this is such, that's such an abstract concept. It's it's the conversation that lots of people jokingly have, but it's when you come across a weird food item, mm-hmm. there's always the person who eventually asks, who was the first person to look at a clam <laughs> yep. and go, oh, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I'm going to eat it. I'm, I'll, oh. I'll eat it. I'll, I'll eat put that in my mouth. <laughs> what's, it, his, <laughs> mate, oh, what's, it, what's his name from the old commercial? Uh, uh, like Jimmy or, or Timmy? <laughs> Give it to Chim- Timmy. He, he eats anything. <laughs> that was also a joke in The Three Ninjas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to eat dog poop. <laughs> but it's these these are the same thing of like it makes sense that we desired the honey from the bees. But like who looked at a silkworm and went, I could sew from that. <laughs> well, and it would have started as collecting these things. Exactly. We found they were already Going doing and harvesting. But then there are uh ancient Mediterranean archaeological sites 
that I think four or five thousand years ago with artificial beehives. Five thousand years ago. That's insane. Now, as time went on, as we get closer and closer to the present, the, the number of domesticated species skyrockets. Yeah. Because we figured out what we can do. We're constantly coming up with new purposes for them. By around 2,000 years ago, we've got ducks and pigeons and turkeys. Reindeer are one of the few large animals that were domesticated recently. Most of the Mm -hmm. big ones happened early, and then it's been small since then. We've domesticated lots of marine species. Fish and all sorts of of things, especially when we're hunting them Mm -hmm. for food. We have pets. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, we breed things specifically for, like, there is no purpose to a lot of dog breeds other than just to look cute. Yeah, it's, when you you start getting into, um, it's it's like alternative skins for a character, like, especially with reptiles, you have scaleless snakes and... <laughs> or like, hypo, like hypoallergenic yeah. cats and stuff. I mean, it's, it's, we're, you know, we're making the animals ergonomic and, and aesthetically pleasing now. Yep. We've also domesticated a whole lot more plants. We've, we've done all bunch. Mm-hmm. One of the most interesting things that we've domesticated species for is research. Yes. Fruit flies. Yeah. There are research strains of fruit flies, of lab mice and lab rats. We have come up with a bajillion different reasons to have plants and animals basically working for us. Yeah. We have we we have mastered the ability to shape the evolution of wild species mm-hmm. into what we want. And that's before we ever figured out genetics. Yeah, exactly. Like nowadays we, you know, GMOs, genetically modified organisms are a, a hot topic issue, but we've been messing with the DNA of animals the the natural way of just letting them mate with each other. Oh yeah, for thousands of years. We, all every almost every plant or animal we eat is a GMO. Yes. It just took a long time to modify it. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just what we're doing. We're modifying their genetic trajectory. Exactly, and it's it's um, I don't know, it 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 it's almost has like that a matrix feeling of you start to realize that everything you're seeing is not false. But it is abstract. Yeah, we made this. This is all through the lens of human. And yeah. all of these things at one point had a wild you know, form that was sometimes completely unrecognizable from what it is now. Yeah. And that's, that's another thing that, that goes into the study of domestication is the question, you know, the question of when exactly did certain species become domesticated? Mm-hmm. What exactly were their ancestors can get really complicated, especially like like cows. Cows mm-hmm. were domesticated multiple times in multiple places, and then as our culture grew, the different breeds of cows interbred. Yeah. So their genetics are a huge mess. Mm-hmm. And trying to pinpoint where exactly did this start is tough. And and morphologically, right, the skeleton, those shifts are gradual. Well, and it's, it's like nowadays we, we talk about dogs and we compare mutts to purebreds, but all dogs are mutts because we've been <laughs> going, hey, I like the way that Dalmatian's shaped and the way this dog's shaped. I'm going to make them breed together. And eventually you get a new breed that people will call a purebred version of that. Yes. Whatever. But it's, it's just a mixture of other weird 
shapes of dog. Yeah. You just it's just is, a really weird looking wolf. Yeah, it's just it's a whole <laughs> poor wolf. And then there's the point to be made real quick. Right, well, we don't have time for this, but <laughs> this this idea that not all animals and plants are equally domesticated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the classic comparison is dogs and cats. Yes. Cats are all practically still wild. Yeah. If I put my cat outside, she would probably do fine. Yeah, I won't do absolutely. that because I mean, it's terrible for the environment. All cats should be indoor cats. Everybody. PSA. <laughs> but this is why we have way more of a feral cat problem than a feral dog problem. Dogs have, a lot of dogs have been bred so much that they are no longer why, like a lot of dogs wouldn't make it. Yeah. Out of your the little shit zoo is not gonna, you know, form a pack. Yes. And start hunting down you know, squirrels. Whereas cats still retain a lot of the features and behaviors of their wild mm-hmm. ancestors. And exactly what determines that difference is a big question. And that, you know, that we don't have time to talk about. S- yeah, you can see it in their proportions and <laughs> Absolutely. all interesting things like that. Another quick interesting side note when it comes to domestication is, and, and we mentioned this at the beginning, the difference between domestication and taming, mm-hmm. but there are groups of animals that have been tamed but not domesticated. Elephants oh, yeah. in India have been a part of the human culture there for generations, for, for you know, centuries. People have been riding elephants for, uh, to help them do heavy, heavy lifting and, and to travel. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, Hannibal used them as war machines. Yep. But we've never but they were- bred them. They were never domesticated. So it's, it's, you get a really interesting thing of, you know, we have worked with wild dolphins to help us in search and rescue, but yep. we haven't domesticated them. So it's, it's, you get a really interesting um, spectrum. It's, it's a very gradual uh, and, and uh, gray comparison between yeah. domesticated and wild, but tameable and all that stuff. And trainable. Which yeah. is even more interesting. You can train an an elephant. You can train a dolphin, it, but they're still you haven't taken over their genetic yeah. trajectory like you do in domestication. Anyone who's worked at a zoo or an aquarium, it is and it's one of my favorite things to talk about at my job, but it's amazing what animals you can train. We train sharks. Oh yeah. You guys train crocs and gators. Alligators and crocodiles are actually fantastic at it when they're in the mood. Yep. <laughs> Our alligator snapping turtle is trained. Sweet. And he's better at it than the alligators. <laughs> he, he is a troop. He's a trooper. He just comes right over for feeding. And it's, so it, it's fascinating, but very few of these animals that were just mentioned have ever successfully or even been attempted mm-hmm. to be domesticated. Yes. Now, real quick, because I, I kept bringing it up, and I, I, I mm-hmm. would feel remiss to not bring this up in an episode about domestication. Yes, absolutely. The Fox Farm experiment. It's so interesting. In Russia, there was... We got this bird all the way from Russia. <laughs> there was a researcher... <laughs> <laughs> I'm on my road uh, to Infinity War. I got all... It's all yep, in my head. Yep, it's all fresh. <laughs> there was a researcher who famously took to breeding foxes. Mm-hmm. So he got in contact with a bunch of, uh, you know, he, he got hold of a bunch of these foxes from fox farms. Uh, foxes are, are kept for their fur and such. Yeah. 
so that they're not hunted to dangerous levels. Yes. This experiment, basically, the, the goal of it was, what happens if we breed a wild species, more or less wild, they were farmed, but they weren't domesticated, intentionally for tameness? Mm-hmm. A controlled experiment. And so he and colleagues had these foxes, and they, all right, we are going to test these foxes for tameness. How are they around humans? Are they calm? Are they, mm-hmm. are they friendly? And all that. And then every generation, we're going to breed the friendliest ones. Yeah. The tamest, the nicest. And they did this for 30 or 35 generations of foxes over, I think, 40 years. Nice. And by the end of it, what they had, and there are videos of this, and I will find them, we'll put them on the blog post. It's really interesting. They created a breed of foxes that were not only very tame, affectionate, that mm-hmm. they would walk up to the to the gate where the foxes were, and the foxes would run up to say hi. Their tails would wag. Mm-hmm. They would jump up on the people. They would fight each other for the affection of the humans. Mm-hmm. They turned them into dogs. Yeah. And one of the most fascinating things about this, at going all the way back to the earlier part of the episode, all they were doing was breeding for behavior. Yeah, they were not looking for any other physical features. The nicest, the tamest, the friendly, that's all we're choosing for. And the foxes they ended up with had droopy ears and curly tails and mottled <laughs> fur. <laughs> because for some reason, those features are carried along genetically yeah. with the processes of domestication. It's really, and there, there's so many things that could go with that. You know, is it just that now that selective pressures have been taken off of one attribute because they're being cared for? Yep. That can the is the tail allowed to curl because it doesn't need to be straight. Right. You don't need camouflage anymore, so your fur can go all sorts of colors. Yeah, just the lack of pressure can allow things to kind of unravel. Or is it that we are selecting for behaviors that are genetically linked? Yes, that there's a connection somehow. Like a physical connection in the genome. Yeah, that if you change the genome for mean friendly, it also dominoes down to Modeled fur. Yeah, that those genes are maybe next to each other. Yeah. And so when they shift around or when they're mutated, they mutate or shift together. Yeah, they, they affect one another or it's... it's Ge- Who knows? It's Genetics is still such a, a, a <laughs> crazy maze of questions to be answered, but it's, yeah. it's really interesting stuff. Now, the final note that I want to make about the Fox Farm experiment is that they also did it the other direction. <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot about that. They bred a strain of foxes to be super mean. <laughs> and it also succeeded, and they also saw physical changes that came along with it. Interesting. They they bred, like, super puppy <laughs> foxes, and then just nasty foxes that did it. Like, there are videos of them going up to the, the cage of one of these foxes, and it just s- snarls and growls the whole time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then they eventually escaped. They learned to open doors and... <laughs> oh, actually, I'm glad you made that joke because I had this written down. The tamed foxes, I forgot to mention this, over mm-hmm. the years there would be escapees. Uh-huh. And they always came back. Yeah. The tamed ones yeah. that they bred to be dem- to tamed and, and, and hyper-domesticated, if they got out, they always came back. Yeah, it's really And this was in, stuff. like, half a century. Yeah. So when you're really focusing on it, 
in a lifetime. It's insane how quick that can happen. Well, it used to baffle me as a little kid how, because I'd hear about dog breeders. And when I finally learned that, that meant that they had dogs, you know, a dozen, 40, 100, whatever mm-hmm. it was. And they would see, you know, breed for certain traits or breed for healthiest dog, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, have babies, wait for those babies to grow up, and then let them have babies. At first, I was like, that's, that's going to take forever. <laughs> you know, that, that's a ridiculous, you're, because I was thinking of humans and, you know. Oh, yeah. I was thinking of the fact that it, that takes decades for us to get to that point. But as we mentioned, fast reproducing animals, yep. yeah, it's going to take you still a, a chunk of your life. But in 40 years, you can go through more than four generations of dogs. Oh, absolutely. And in 40 years, you can go through like a good 20 or so. And that's really, really interesting. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a fascinating and very complex behavior in humans to put that much time and dedicated effort into something like breeding a trait. Yes. And it's it's fun for me to think of, to play the game of thinking of wild animals that are super bad for domestication. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, rattlesnakes are the one that comes to mind. Rattlesnakes take forever to reproduce. Mm-hmm. They don't like people. Yeah. And they're super dangerous. It's And that's a lot of reptiles uh, yeah. are, are difficult for a few reasons. One, not a lot of social reptiles. That too. They're... They have no reason to want to listen to you because typically they're not listening to anybody. No. And, and, and if they, and the ones that are social seem to be social in weirder ways. They're not yeah. social the same way that we are. Like yes. There's evidence of, of potential social behavior through long distance communication or, mm-hmm. or through sort of like territoriality as a social structure in, in things like some snakes. Mm-hmm. but they're not doing it the way that we do it. Like, a cat yeah. is nice because a cat's social pretty much the same way we're social. A cat likes to cuddle. Mm-hmm. Right, we have that in common. It's a, and it's it's also, these are animals with extremely ingrained instincts. Because, for instance, alligators are bred for consumer purposes. There are mm-hmm. blue alligators that oh, have yeah. a blue tinge to them. Yeah. Snakes are purely like, for aesthetics. Designer yeah. snakes are, are all over the place, like coloration. But the interesting thing there is that still basically act like an alligator. Yep, still act like snakes. Still, be- they they are they have no the, there's no behavior for us to build off of. <laughs> 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 like there's not really a friendly aspect to alligator behavior. So how do how do I make an affectionate alligator when they don't really show affection except when they're mating with each other, and that's not what that's not what I want. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's the opposite. And it's it's also that yeah. these are animals that are. It's hard for us to find a way to live along. I mean, these are big, scaly animals with sharp teeth. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the other thing is that they're dangerous, and a dangerous, dangerous. animal is, is hard to domesticate. We could yeah. talk about domestication forever and ever. It's a fascinating topic. I was super happy to see this as a suggestion. Sometimes we get mm-hmm. suggestions and I read them and I go, oh, that's interesting. I, that's mm-hmm. an interesting suggestion. Every now and then we get a suggestion and I, and I say, yes. Yep. I was yep. hoping somebody would say this one. Yep. This was one of those, thank you, Michael, 
for making this suggestion. It is much appreciated. We have had a lot of fun talking about it. It's, yeah, and we say this all the time, but there's there's so much that could be unpacked here because it's, each each case of it has its own nuances, which is really neat. Yep. And, dear listeners, if you would like to hear us unpack it, more, any particular aspect of this, or if there's any other subject you would like to hear us do, let us know. We've got a long Indeed. list of requests, but we're constantly working through it. It's always getting smaller because we're yep. working through it, and then you folks keep suggesting new things, which is great. Yep. As always, this is the Common Descent Podcast. We release new episodes every fortnight. Mm-hmm. So catch up with us in February. Next episode, by the way, is going to be a very special episode. Yes, it is. And in the meantime, you can find us on our social media. You can follow us on Patreon, like our new friend William has followed us on Patreon, along with so many others. And we love to hear from you. And we love that you keep listening. And we love your requests. And we love you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for joining us. I'm trying to think if there's like a fun sign-off thing. Like, yeah, you know, get in touch with us and tell us about your favorite domesticated animal, like the ones in your house. I will definitely make a post like that on Facebook and Twitter. Absolutely. I'm going to post will... pictures of my domesticated animals. We we will give you all excuses to post pictures of your pets. I will, I will get a picture from home. Yes. <laughs> anyway, we will see you all next time on Common Descent. It, they have to be domesticated. If you post a picture of a wild animal that lives in your house, it doesn't count. That doesn't count, and we will also call the police. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that badger is, is forfeit from this. <laughs> Bye. See you, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. For more from us, you can follow us on the Common Descent Podcast Twitter account, Facebook page, or on our WordPress blog where we post additional cool stuff for each episode. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome. You can find this and other video game remix music at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope to see you next time. <laughs>